Um, you know, when, when you do something like prepare a message, um, you start oftentimes weeks ahead, uh, reading, reading certain things, taking notes, writing things that strike you, uh, looking, things, looking words up, trying to understand the flow and what Jesus is trying to say. And then uh, the, the week before you speak is when it gets real intense and, and you, you spend a lot of time and, and you take a lot of notes. You know, I, I have pages and pages and pages of notes and then um, I can't fit them all into the sermon and I'm always feeling like, oh, I'm leaving stuff out that's so good. But I, I would be, we'd be going like half a verse a week if we did that and John would last for 15 or 20 years. So we can't do that. It's lasted pretty long already. And then, so you're just keyed up and you come to this moment where you're keyed up and you, all kinds of thoughts go through your mind. Like you think, is this really, are they going to understand? Is, am I, I feel like it's not as good as I thought it was. Oh, that's a stupid joke. Don't say that. All these things go through your mind. And then all of a sudden, Grace looks at you and asks you a math question. And you're like, uh, six and 12. Oh, no. John 15. I don't know. So... So now I just uh, it just throws you off, and I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do? Grace asked me math, but now we're in John 15, verses 12 to 17. Let me remind you of where we've been. All right, let me set the stage for you, in a sense. Jesus, it's the Last Supper. Jesus is giving his last words, teaching the last thing he's going to teach before he dies to his disciples, and so this is incredibly important. He's telling them what he thinks is the most important things for them to get straight. He's equipping them for the task ahead. Task ahead. He knows that they're going to go through this incredibly difficult time. You know, they're going to go, he's going to be crucified, and they're all going to run in fear. Most of his disciples ran away and hid. Then there's going to be Saturday, where they just sit around and they just are miserable because everything fell apart. They're miserable. They're worried we know from history, I mean, we know from history that there were other people who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah. And then it didn't work out real well, and the Romans killed them. And oftentimes, they hunted down their followers and killed them too. That's why the disciples are hiding. So on Saturday, they're worried. They're miserable. The greatest person they had ever met had just had his life snuffed out. The greatest cause they'd ever been a part of had just been abruptly ended you know, just like that. And their life is a shambles. They have nothing, in a sense, to live for. And Jesus knows this is coming, and then is going to come Sunday. And Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And he's told them he's going to rise. They just, they just can't get it. And so he's equipping them for all of this. And then what happens for the years after that? How are they going to go on once he's gone? And this is what John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, this is what it's about. How will they go on once he has ascended into heaven? Do you see that's what it's about for us too? How will we go on? How will we live with Jesus in heaven? How are we going to make it? How are we going to live this life? Jesus sets before us this incredible opportunity to live a life you know, he uses that word life. We've been talking about it over and over and over. It's not, it's not bios, just physical life. It's zoe, two Greek words for life. It's zoe life that he talks about, a life full of meaning, a life full of purpose. And he always, he tacks on the, the word eternal so that they understand it's a life right here, right now that goes straight into eternity. 
And so he's teaching them and he's teaching us. And he's giving them different illustrations and different metaphors for the relationship that they now will have. He just talked about the, 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 uh, the vine, the trunk with the branches and how that relationship is. And we explored that the last few weeks. And now he's going to slip into another area. He's going to talk about friendship. And I just want to tell you, uh, just, just so that you understand, there's a number of people I've leaned heavily on in this. One is a guy named Merrill Tenney. He, he's written an excellent commentary on the book of John. Uh, another is a man of fabulous uh, intellect named N.T. Wright. And then uh, a guy that I really liked also named Tim Keller. All of them have written extensively about John, and they all have brilliant ideas and stuff that, that just is so thoughtful. But the key idea here is now is he's going to talk about friendship. And if we're really honest, you know, friendship is not one of those things where we go, yeah, let's learn about friendship. If you think about it, you know, if somebody says, I'm going to show you how to, you know, how to do a miracle. Yes, boom, big stuff. I love that. I'm going to show you about this. I'm going to show you, I'll show you the, God's going to show you the person you're supposed to marry. And there's somebody going, yes, that's what I've been waiting for, right? This is friendship. And oftentimes, if we're honest, our most deepest thought is, oh, I kind of know what that's about. It's often overlooked, but it's desperately needed in our day because friendship is required for authentic human flourishing. We have dumbed down the meaning of friendship, right? I mean, it's just obvious in our day. And it's not like I'm some old guy trying to talk about, oh, these new technologies, these kids these days. I'm not talking, it's just, it's just the way it is, right? Years ago, talking to one of my kids, I said something about somebody, oh, I'm friends, I'm friends with him. And I said, really? You're friends with this person? Well, Facebook friends. Oh, so this might not even be the real person we're talking about. This is going to be somebody that's using that name. This isn't a real friendship. But it's named it. Yeah, right? Steve so says, hey, friend me on Facebook. We're friends. Oh, no, not exactly. We talk about the foundational need for friendship. And when I talk about that in a person's life, it is not as cool. It's not as sexy as like talking about romantic love. I noticed when I used to work with teenagers, if I told them ahead of time, we're going to have a talk about sex, the house was packed, right? They're all like, yeah, let's hear what Bob has to say. Let's talk about that stuff. And I talked about marriage. They go, oh, yeah, yeah, we love that, right? Talk about friendship. They're like, yeah, yeah, I got friends. It's just not as cool as romantic love. Romantic love is blogged about. It's sung about. It's studied far more than friendship. But friendship is more critical in a, in a lot of different ways. If you watch any movie today, say about a sports team trying to beat the odds, or superheroes trying to save the world from a galactic enemy, or soldiers on a dangerous mission trying to defeat an enemy, you know, you could, you could watch Braveheart or Saving Private Ryan or Guardians of the Galaxy, or you can watch uh, Toy Story versions one through eight, whatever they're on now. All of them are fundamentally about friendship. That's what's going on there. They're fundamentally about friendship. And so I want to talk about three things. First, I want to talk about why we need friendship. Why do we need it? It's talked about throughout the Bible, throughout Old Testament and New Testament, and Jesus talks about it a lot because we're made for it. We need it. At its fundamental core, relationship and friendship started at the very beginning. Christianity has always been about this. It's been about one God 
who exists eternally as three persons, who love and honor and serve and bring glory to each other. Christianity is about an eternal friendship. That's the core. That's the start. That's the beginning. An eternal friendship. In a religion like Islam, there is one unipersonal God. Before there were humans, Allah never loved. In Eastern religions, there's no personal God, just some sort of impersonal life force in the universe. There's no love as we think of it. Christianity says there is a God. He's the perfect embodiment of friendship. And he wants us to have what he has. Stop and think about that for a moment. This eternal friendship of loving, of serving, of sharing, of submitting, of working together, God says, I want you to have that. I want you to be a part of that. And so the Bible tells us that God loves us, but Jesus gives us more. He, gives, he begins to tell us, like, what is the extent of God's love? In last week's passage, what did we say? We said the Son loves us like the Father loves the Son. The Father loves us like the Son loves the Father. This is the kind of love we have access to. He wants us to have what he has. Before time began, there was this friendship. Out of this friendship, the universe was created and humanity came to life and friendship is at the heart of everything. That is why it's fundamental to us and it is a distinctly human desire. You can't say, well, I got Jesus. I don't need to go to church and be with all those other people. Because first, he commands you to do that. But also, we need each other. See, we got to understand, we need each other. It's not like we're just saying, oh, please come to church and be another person to fill a seat. No, it's because we need you. And you need us. It works both ways. We need this. Because we are not made to go it alone. We have this deep desire within us for friendship. It's a part of being human. And to not desire friendship, to be fine with no friendships, is to suppress your humanity. It is to hold back on what you were made for. And in this day and age, we see this in all these studies, loneliness is rampant in our society more than ever before. It's all around us and it teaches us something. We need people, we need each other, and they need us. It's interesting, as you look at Jesus' life, he's constantly befriending people. He eats with sinners. Remember, that was a slur. This man eats with sinners. Why was that a slur? It was a slur because in that culture, to sit down and eat with someone was to show acceptance, to show love, to show friendship. This is why the Pharisees struggled with this so much. Because what they're saying is the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're eating with these people. That means, I mean, we know what that means. It means you're accepting their lifestyle. You can't do that. And can you imagine, I can imagine Jesus said, oh, I can't. Just watch me. Hey, let's go out to eat. Right? Just all the time. And so, you would think Jesus would be, I mean, I always thought this, Jesus would be perfectly self-reliant, perfectly self-sufficient, but he makes friends. He, he has this distinct human need that every human has. It's a deep human reality. You know, if you go back to the garden, go back to the Garden of Eden. It's a perfect world. It's a perfect garden. Adam is created. He's a perfect man. There's no sin. And what does God say after Adam is created? This 
is not good. This is not good. Why? He needs someone. He needs someone. And why did he need this? Why did he need someone? Why did he need Eve to not get lonely? It's interesting when you think about this. Remember, Adam had not sinned. There's not a sin problem here. But God says, this guy's going to get lonely. We got to do something. It's not because there's a shortcoming in Adam. He's just lonely. He's not lonely because he's imperfect. He's lonely because he's perfect. He's made in the image of God. Therefore, he has to have someone with him. Loneliness is the one problem that you have that is not a sin. It is because you're made in the image of God. That's why you get lonely. And if you are lonely, or you have been lonely, that points to your maker. You're made for this. Human relationships are indispensable. That is why we need friendship. Secondly, the qualities of friendship. Now, we have two kinds of friendships. They're both essential. One is horizontal, human being to human being. One is vertical, God and man. We need them both. We were made for them both. And Jesus bridges both. And there's two qualities I want you to see of friendship. The first one is vulnerability. This is what makes friends friends. This is one of them. Now, the other one is faithfulness. Vulnerability and faithfulness. You have to have them both. If you have one, you don't have it. If you pour your guts out to somebody, but you're not there for them in their time of need, that's not a friendship, that's group therapy. That's all that is. We're just pouring out to each other, but we're not helping each other. Or if you serve them in their need, but you don't reveal yourself to them, all right? So if you serve them in their need, in other words, you, you're, you're, uh, you're very faithful, but, but you don't share anything with them, so you're not being vulnerable. Well, what's happening is you're, you're basically a social worker, not a friend. Now, I'm not against therapy, and I'm not against social workers, all right? One of my kids is a social worker, so I'm not anti those things. And those things you can develop into friendships. But I want you to see vulnerability and faithfulness are required to have a friendship. And so when we talk about vulnerability, Jesus says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know, what his, master's, know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now, look at that. What is that? That's self-disclosure. Jesus saying, I've told you everything. He's, he's got this personal investment in them. He's got an openness. He's got a transparency with them. A servant, there's no need to know why the master does things. That's what a servant is. He just needs to know, what does the master want me to do? And, he, and I do it. That's what a servant is. Jesus says, you're more than a servant. You're a friend. In a friendship, there's a sharing of information. There's a sharing of lives. There's a sharing of personal matters. There's a sharing of hopes and dreams. Let me illustrate this. I was thinking about this. If you go to a restaurant, I really love this dish, so that's why, and you order shrimp crayole jambalaya, which I really love. I really love it. I love the shrimp. I love all the ingredients. I love that, it, that if it's done right, it's got a kick. It's got a kick. You know, you'll, you, you'll, you'll walk away with a sore butt because it kicks you in the butt. I don't know why I said that. Okay, so uh, just keep moving on. Don't think about that. <laughs> and, and, and so if you go to a restaurant and you say, I want the shrimp crayole jambalaya, the waiter or waitress, the server, 
The server can't say, why in the world would you want to order that? Right? The server can't question your motive for that because it's not what a server does. That's a servant. You know, you see, they can't do that. Now, sometimes what they'll do, we had this happen. My wife and I went out to eat not so long ago. And we had this happen that she asked about two dishes and, and, the, uh, and the server said, ah, listen, the first one is just, it's not that good today. But the second one's delicious. And she said, oh, I'll have the second one. And then the, then the server walked away. <clears throat> and my wife said, what a good server. She's concerned about us. That, give her a good tip. Now, I used to work for tips a long time ago. And I said, Bev, there's another possible explanation here. And she says, what? And I said, she's just made us think that she's looking out for us. That's a great way to get tips. Because you walk away and they're going, you were thinking of us, like a friend. And really, it's just about tips, right? I mean, I used to do that. When I would take people, fancy hotel, take people to their room, I'd say, where are you from? One couple said, Walla Walla, Washington. Way out in the middle of nowhere. I said, Walla Walla. You know, I've heard so much about that place. I hear it's beautiful. And they were like, oh, yes, it is. I said, man, you know, one of these days, I want to take a cross-country trip. I love to just go through Walla Walla, Washington and see the place. You would? Yes. And the, the wife says, honey, give him our number. You look us up if you come through Walla Walla. We'll show you the sights and have a fun time. And so he writes it down and hands it to me. And, uh, and, and you know, they get to their room. I take their luggage in for them. I said, thank oh, oh, why, thank you. You're so generous. Thank you very much. And I walk out going, Walla Walla. Yeah, right? Because that's just the way, I don't even know why I told you that. It's just the way things are. That's why. That's what a servant does, right? That's what a servant does. And so for us, he's saying, I got something different for you because the relationship I'm talking about is not transactional. It's a friendship. A relationship with a servant is transactional. A, a relationship with a waiter or a waitress is transactional. If you have somebody take you to your room in a hotel, that's transactional. It's not a friendship. But here's what a friend could say. If you say, I want that shrimp Crayole jambalaya, here's what a friend could say. Hey, uh, are you sure that's a good idea? Didn't you tell me lately you've been having stomach issues and spicy food really, really does you in? Are you sure you're not going to regret this later? You see what a friend can do? A, a friend can question your motives. Why? Because you've opened up to that friend. They know things about you. A waiter, a waitress is not going to say, why in the world do you want to order that? They, they can't say that, but a friend can. And Jesus, here's why, because you've let them in. You've let them in. And Jesus is saying, I'm letting you in. I'm letting you in. I've told you everything. This is why you're my friends. I'm letting you in. I'm being vulnerable. This is a critical part of a relationship. It's being vulnerable, letting people in. Because too many people are guarded for the fear of their reaction to vulnerability. We all understand that, right? You're a little bit guarded because you say, if I just put myself out there, somebody can hurt me. I'm afraid they'll laugh. Or even worse, I'm afraid they'll yawn. They just won't care, right? And so we have this idea that Jesus is opening up between us and him a friendship, 
A friendship is a mutual choosing by two people to open up to each other and to enter into each other's life. This is what he's talking about here. This is what he's saying to us. See, this is not religion. Religion is just sayings that we're to follow and then we get rewarded somehow. That's transactional. In Christianity, Jesus didn't give us just sayings. He gave us himself. In chapter 14, he talks about that. This is part of the different ways he showed them the different aspects of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He starts talking about this whole idea that he now will be in us. The Spirit will be in us. The Spirit will guide us to truth. The Spirit will love us, will convict us. The Spirit will get in our face sometimes and say, this is not a good idea because he loves us, because he's in, and we have opened ourselves up to him and he to us. He says, I'll be with you and I'll guide you the whole way. Not just the gift of information, it's the gift of friendship. It's not about getting some kind of an owner's manual so you can figure it out on your own. He's saying what you have is the presence of God in your life guiding you and directing you. He's teaching his disciples this. He's teaching us this. This is possible for us. He's saying, I want to walk with you on this journey. Jesus is the God who lets you in. He becomes vulnerable. You know, one of the things I will say at a wedding sometimes is that it is um, a sobering thing to hold someone else's heart in your hands. This ultimate vulnerability that comes between a man and a woman in a marriage in, in, in marriage. It's a sobering thing. Why? Because you can hurt so easily. You can hurt so easily. And Jesus says, I'm giving it all. I'm giving you my heart. I'm making myself vulnerable to you. And I know you can hurt me. I know you can hurt me. But we're friends. And so I'm making myself vulnerable. But also, the other side is faithfulness. <clears throat> greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. Jesus is telling them exactly what he's doing for them. He's going to be the ultimate example of faithfulness. And I want to think about this for a minute. There's some interesting thoughts that have come to my mind on this. If you think about this, if you and I are walking, let's say we're walking, we're crossing the street, and suddenly this car just comes hurtling, and I'm like, watch it, and I push you out of the way, and then wham, I get hit by the car and it kills me. This is totally fictional. I just want you to know that right off the bat. Totally fictional. I do not guarantee this for any one of you here. All right? But you would say, he gave his life for me. Right? But that's not exactly true if you think about it. Here's what happened. I gave up a few years of my life so that you could have a few more years in your life. Because I'm gonna die and you're going to die. I can't just say, oh, I'm not going to die, but I give my life for you. I'm going to die. I may, I may do it a little early. I may take a few years off my life so that you have a few more years, but I can't sacrifice my life for you in that sense. If you understand what I'm saying here, because this is important, I think. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, so I'm going to die. Death is unavoidable for us. But Jesus lived the perfect life. 
Remember earlier, he said, the evil one is coming for me. And he said, basically, in the, the reverse Mosley version, and he, but he said, but he's got nothing on me. Basically, in the Greek, that's what it's saying. He's got nothing on me. There's not one thing he can accuse me of. Not one thing. I have lived a perfect life. There's no charge to be laid in my account. There's no sin. So Jesus is the only person who can truly give up his life for another because he has the sinless life to give up. And friendship requires faithfulness. And Jesus says, I will be faithful to you knowing that you will be unfaithful and I will die for you. He's telling them what's coming. Friendship requires faithfulness. In our culture, we have expressive individualism. That is, we have to pursue our own dreams. We have to pursue our own desires. We are to act out on our own impulses and live out our own ambitions, even if it comes at the expense of relationships or commitments. So we tend to choose friendships that will help us achieve our personal ambitions and dreams. And they become very transactional. Because it becomes, oh, this is so, oh, this is so wonderful. You make me feel, you're so great to me. Okay, I'll be great to you. We got this transactional relationship. But if you stop being great to me, I'm gonna stop being great to you. I'm done. That's what tends to happen. But look what Jesus says. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Jesus says, no, wait, there's more to this. This isn't transactional. I chose you. Now, he, he's, Jesus is a rabbi. And I think what he's relating to, which they would totally understand, is the way rabbis got disciples in those days. In those days, what would happen is, and this is a long thing, we've talked about this before, but there's a couple levels of schooling in Jewish society. All kids start at the bottom level. And then when they finished the bottom level and they had the basic reading and writing and, and they could do those things, um, some of them, they'd say, hey, you know, <laughs> there's the next level, but it'll be too much for you. Go get a job. You know, you're 13, go apprentice to someone, live a good life, love God, honor him with your life. But you're not smart enough. That's the underlying thing, you know. It's like the bluebirds group in the reading class and, and the, you know, and then there's the group that's the crows, right? They're never quite that crass, but it's kind of like that. So you didn't make it. So you washed out after the first level. Then there's a second level. And then at the end of the second level, almost all the people, they say, hey, great stuff. You guys have really achieved. Okay, go get a job, apprentice to somebody. God bless you. Love God. Honor him with your life. See ya. And then there's a few, a very few, that were considered the top level. And then they kept going. And after they were done, they would go and they would apply to a rabbi. They would say, I want to be your disciple. And they would spend, usually it was about a week, they would spend the next day just walking with that rabbi everywhere and he would quiz them. And they would show him how smart, they, how smart they were. They would show him how much knowledge, how they knew the Torah. They would show him and they would earn the ability to be a disciple of that rabbi. That's how it worked. Now, how did it work with Jesus? Remember, he's walking along. There's Peter, right? There's Andrew. There's, John, there's these, some of these disciples. They're fishing. Why are they fishing? Because they didn't make it to the top level. They're the washouts. They're in the crow group. They're the ones they said, hey, you know, good stuff, good try, well done. You get a participant's trophy, you know, and 
Now, go out there and live for God and get a job as a fisherman. Right? That's why they're fishing. And Jesus says, follow me. The rabbi asked them to be his disciple. It's a total reversal of the process. And he went around and he asked different people who were totally unqualified to be disciples. As far as the Jewish idea was concerned, they were totally unqualified to be disciples. And he kept asking them, will you be my disciple? Follow me, be my disciple. I want you. Yeah, you'll do great. You know, you can imagine someone say, well, everyone says I'm a loser. You're no loser. You can get with me. I'm going to do great things with you. See, Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. It's a total reversal of how disciples are made in that day and age. He committed himself to them. He chose them. He made himself vulnerable to them. Every one of them could have said, uh, no. They could have said no. No rabbi would put himself out like that. But Jesus did. He chose them. And they never impressed him with their knowledge, right? He never went, that's why I chose you. You're such a smart one, Peter. So friendship is based on the shared commitment. That's why C.S. Lewis, in his book on the four loves, he says friendship is the least natural. Why? Because there's no obvious reason for it. You know, a parent loves their child. That's an obvious reason. Romantic love, there's obvious reasons there. There's attraction. A friendship doesn't have to have any obvious reason. It can just be two people who decided to open themselves, be vulnerable, and be faithful to each other, and they've become friends. It's electing to make a choice. So, why we need friendship, the qualities of friendship, vulnerability and faithfulness, an example of true friendship. Jesus says twice in this passage, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is my command, love each other. Jesus tells them, this is exactly what I'm doing for you. I want you to do it for others. This is how he wants, us, wants them to think. He's, he's living this life in front of them. The ultimate display of friendship is the cross. Because even when his friends were unfaithful, he remained faithful to them. You know, in Gethsemane, he had a choice. He could go to death on the cross or he could lose his friends forever. He could have called, it says he could have called a legion of angels. He could have called 10,000 angels to protect him. He could have said, I'm done. No, this, no, this is too far. They fell asleep for crying out loud. I'm in my greatest hour of need and my three closest friends can't help me because they're not willing. They're too tired. So I'll take angels. He could have done that. And so Jesus goes to the cross for the sake of his friends, of which, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of them. Jesus is sharing his deepest secret. He's spilling the beans. Here it is. I'm going to die for you. This is what makes you my friend and not my servant. This vertical relationship, which then affects all of our horizontal relationships. We have a purpose in this world. We're to bear fruit the idea of friendship is bracketed by how it works out horizontally, vertically, and then horizontally. Think about, how, think about how this worked out with the disciples. They're all so diverse, socially, politically. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. James and John were fishermen also, but it seems to indicate they owned a boat. 
So they're a whole nother class. They're way richer than just a hired hand. Matthew was a tax collector. He was rich, but he was a traitor to the Jews because he sided with Rome. And Jesus chose him, chose him. And then, you know, we always talk about this. Simon the Zealot. He was part of, the, uh, part of the group that was trying to overthrow Rome. They were the original terrorists. They were, he was a freedom fighter or a terrorist, just depending on which side you were on. And so they're all socially distant because here's Matthew who sided with Rome and here's Simon who wants to kill everyone who sided with Rome. And I always think Jesus made them room together on road trips. I just think that would have been so fun just to watch the fireworks, you know. But you got these people that are so different from each other, rich, poor, political, everything. And they became friends. They lived for each other. They loved each other. Or even if you think about the early church, how did that work out with the early church? Well, in, in Acts, it tells us about the leaders of the church in Antioch, all right? The church in Antioch is where people were first called Christians. And the reason was they had to come up with, with a name for these people who were turning the world upside down. They said, these people do everything wrong. They do things wrong socially. They do things wrong politically. They do things wrong. They go against everybody. They're equal opportunity offenders. And what gets it, you know, we have, we have one letter from, from a, a, a Roman governor who says, and the problem is they even are nice to the people who don't like them. Even our people, they bring them food when they're hungry. This is wrong. All right? So this church, who is there? Well, it says the leaders, Barnabas. He was a very wealthy man. He was a, a Greek Jew from Cyprus. Then there was Simon called Niger. Niger means black. So he was in, uh, probably dark complexion and from Africa. Then there's Lucius, who is a Cyrene. Cyrene is a part of Africa. So you have another. Then Menaean, he was from Palestine. But it says something interesting about him. He was brought up in the same home as Herod. He was brought up in the same home as Herod. And, and the way that's worded is a little different. So they think maybe he was a half-brother to Herod. You know, maybe something like that. And now he's a follower of Jesus. You talk about the extremes of society. And then there's Saul of Tarsus, who is a Pharisee. So you have all these extremes religiously. We have all these extremes ethnically, you know, racially, culturally, status, everything. And these are the leaders of this church who changed the world. They made such an impression in that city that they said, we've got to call them something different because they are too crazy for us. They're so weird. You know, many people would love the church to be a celebration of sameness. Same preference, same politics, same background, same look. That's not God's plan. In Antioch, we see a commitment to others that exists across all of the differences. In Antioch, we see suddenly they've said, these people are so different, we need a new name. It's not that they're breaking laws. We don't hate them because they're breaking laws. We don't hate them because they're hurting people. We don't hate them because they have terrible habits or, or they believe terrible things. We hate them because they're being so good. And it's interesting how that's phrased in, in one, of the, one of the letters we have. They're being so good to everybody. 
That's just unnatural. We hate that. Because they ignored all political and societal boundaries, they loved and they served people, and they became friends with everyone. The gospel transcends differences because Jesus became vulnerable to us. And Jesus was faithful to us, even though he knew we would be unfaithful. And so now we can be friends to others. Now we can start to be vulnerable to others. We can do things for the sake of others. We can be faithful and committed for the sake of others. And so realize this. What does this mean for us as followers of Jesus Christ? We have to be different. Are we? Are we? Would our neighbors know that we're followers of Jesus Christ? Do the people we work with know? The people we come in contact with know? Because we have to be different. And it has to begin to show up in the way we behave and love and serve and give to others. And realize this. This is something I, this is such a sobering thought for me. When I sin, I am betraying my best friend. When I sin, I am hurting the most important person to me in the whole universe. And yet he remains faithful to me and will not, will not leave me or forsake me. And then realize this, we have a responsibility to go and live and be people that people will say, they're so different. They're so different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us as followers to be different, to love and serve, to show it in our actions with people around us, to show it, to show it as we, we support others who are going to other places and serving and loving in our stead, missionaries and people who want to take it everywhere. We, we need to be a part of that, Father. Help us to take that seriously. And Lord, in this building, in these four walls, help us to be people that others would say, behold how they love one another. Because you have commanded us to love each other. That's where it starts. We love here, and then it breaks out. This is a contagion. It goes everywhere when we're faithful in it. Help us, Lord, to be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.